Israel. My wife Lisa and I have been wanting to go to Israel for several years, and a number of things have just been challenges and kept that from happening, but we were finally able to go. And so I want to say thank you to many of you who are praying that God would open up that door and allow that to happen. We're so grateful for that, for that opportunity. So today I have about a three-hour slide presentation of all of our pictures. No, just joking. <laughs> just joking. But uh, it really was a remarkable trip for us. It was fun to be able to see places that we've read about in our Bibles since we were kids and have a, just a picture of them, a new color, uh, just added color to the pictures that we've had in our mind. We got to go to the Valley of Elah where David defeated Goliath. We got to go to the city of Caesarea that Herod built, the place that uh, the Apostle Paul was held a prisoner for several years while he was awaiting for his trial in Rome. We got the opportunity to see Mount Carmel where uh, Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal. We got to have an opportunity to go to the Sea of Galilee and to the Sea of Capernaum where Jesus spent so much of his earthly ministry, where he performed miracles and he taught. And it's the same place that he called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him in that place. We got to see lots of different things, and I could go on and on. It just really was a great experience. And like I said, it just brings some new color to the stories that we've read. They're real places. They were real people. And it just adds another layer of depth of understanding of the history and the accuracy of God's Word that we have today. So it really was a wonderful experience. Now, my wife, Lisa, has been wanting to do this for a long time. It's been on her bucket list to go to Israel Because when she was a little girl, she wanted to be an archaeologist. She wanted to go on some dig someplace and discover some ancient ruins. And um, we didn't get to do that while we were there. But she did do some digging nonetheless. And I brought a little video so you could see our experience there while while we were there. Hey, South Hills. Lisa and I are now on the beach here of the Mediterranean. And Lisa is a a closet treasure hunter. She loves finding treasures. She would love to go on an archaeological dig someday. So here we are, and she's been digging through the sand on the beach here, and show show what you found. So found some pottery. Found some some pottery. We have no idea how old it is or whatever, but it was just in the sand, buried, bunch of shells and rocks. But it's still old. It is old. We don't know where it's from. It is old and it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we did find some old. Some ancient things there. I'm claiming that that's a first century piece of pottery, right? (laughs) Maybe not, but it was still fun to be there and to experience nonetheless. Now, we spent some time on the Mediterranean coast, but we also spent some time on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is where the Sermon on the Mount, which we introduced this last week, took place. It was on the Sea of Galilee, the northern shore there of the, of the Sea of Galilee, that Jesus delivered this message, this, what we now refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it was really more of a hillside um, than, than, a, than a mountain that we think of today. But, you know, Sermon on the Mount sounds a lot cooler than chat on a hillside. So <laughs> Sermon on the Mount is what it is, and this is where Jesus delivers this great sermon. And it really is a remarkable sermon. I mean, there's really no sermon that's more famous than this sermon, that's more well-known that's had greater impact throughout history than this sermon that Jesus gives on this hillside, this this Sermon on the Mount. And it only would take you about 10 to 15 minutes to read it. Maybe it was a 10, 15-minute talk, but the impact is significant. It's powerful because after Jesus finished this Sermon on the Mount, there were people who were dedicated to him for the rest of their lives. 
But there are also people who are dedicated to ending his life immediately after that. So why is it that this message, this Sermon on the Mount, is so impactful and has been so significant over time? Well, it's because in Jesus' teaching, he has a way of just slicing things open, just splitting things apart. And it's in his teaching through the Sermon on the Mount that he separates the religious world from what it really means to have a real, authentic faith relationship with Jesus Christ. He separates the two. Jesus was never interested in promoting religion, but he has been interested and still is in helping us understand what it means to have a relationship with God. The question you have perhaps is, well, what's the difference? How do we know what the difference between religion and a relationship is? And so what I want to do is give you just a couple of markers of the religious world, religious system, just a couple of markers that come with it that perhaps will help you under, understand and identify the difference between religion and a relationship. And maybe you'll even recognize some of them as well. The first one is this. Mark, three marks of the religious world. The first one is image. In the religious world, in a religious system, image is very, very important. How we come across, how we look to people is more important than who we really are. That there's this somehow this built-up sense of if I can present myself in a certain way, it, it may be a fraud, but that's okay because image is so important. And so people are dragging around these cardboard cutouts. Look at me. This is how I look on the outside, but there's never real change on the inside. So image is very, very important in a religious system in the religious world. The second mark of religious world is this, performance. That is, if I can't change the inside the internal parts, then I better kill myself on the external side of things and do a bunch of things, do a bunch of work. So it's what can I perform? What are the things that I can do in order to feel better about myself and somehow to be better? And so there's this endless piling on of things that you do, things that you perform, and it only leaves you exhausted at the end of it. But that's part of the religious world. Then the third one is this, comparison. That is, if I can't change the inside and I can't fix things by doing a bunch of stuff on the outside, then at least what I can do is point out how much better I am than the people around me. So that's part of the whole religious world too, where it's like, well, I'll just, I'm not as bad as that person and I'm not as bad as that person. But of course, as soon as we start comparing, we lose. But this is part of the religious world. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he dismantles all of that. And for us, it's important for us to understand that these, these markers aren't just an ancient problem, but they're a modern problem today too, aren't they? I don't know about you, but I can find myself being very concerned about my image, what people think of me. I can find myself very concerned about what I'm doing. Am I doing all the right things? Or am I doing things better than someone else? And I don't think I'm alone, am I? And it's exhausting, isn't it? When we're trying to swirl around our image, our performance, and comparing ourselves with other people, it is exhausting. And so that's why I want to invite you to journey along with me in the study on the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus wants to help us understand what it means to have a real, true, authentic relationship with God. To split away, to tear away the image, the performance, the comparison, and say, here's what it means to know Jesus, 
to follow him, to get back to the simplicity of joy and, and, and um, a peace that comes from following him, not the exhaust, exhausting side of trying to live up to a religious system. So that's what we get to do today and the weeks for, coming forward in this great Sermon on the Mount. Now, this, this message that Jesus delivers is found in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5. If you're not quite sure where to go in your Bible, this might help you a little bit of an understanding of the books are, that are surrounding it. But once you find Matthew, it's the first book in the New Testament. If you don't have your Bible, by the way, we printed the passage for you on the notes on your way in. So you can use that to follow along um, with us if you'd like. But once you find that, what I'd like to do is invite you to stand um, we're going to read this passage together. Yeah, so please stand. We're going to read this passage together so you can understand sort of the introduction that Jesus gives to this sermon. And then we're going to look at it verse by verse together. But let's read it together and soak in what it is that Jesus has to say. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Beginning in verse 1, let me just point out a couple of things to you. It says this, Now Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. So first of all, Jesus' message, this sermon, is done outdoors. He does it outside. Now, he could have done this message, this sermon, in a synagogue. Jesus went around, and we know he taught in various synagogues in, the, in that area. But he does this message outside. Why? Because Jesus isn't just interested in speaking to religious people. Jesus is interested in speaking to everyone. He's inviting all people to come and listen to him, not just the religious people. In fact, everyone he wants to come. And still today, he wants us to come and hear, including people who perhaps have been hurt by the religious system or been put off by the religious system. He wants all people to come. So this is an outdoor message so anyone and everyone could come and listen to him. It says that he went up on a mountainside. And again, we've already talked about this. It's more of a hillside. In fact, I brought a picture to kind of show this is the traditional site that many people believe the the Sermon on the Mount took place on a hillside um, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is Mount Arbel. This is where I hiked last, um, last week. You saw the message that if you were here, you saw the message. This is that, that spot overlooking the Sea of Galilee um, that, that, that we were there. But this is the kind of the picture the, of what it was like or the, kind of the, that region that he was in. So he goes up onto a mountainside and then he, when he gets up to the mountainside and all the crowds are around him, it says that he sat down. That's what the, go ahead and go to the next slide. He sat down. Now, this is um, basically when a rabbi, after teaching the, the scripture, or, sorry, reading the scripture, people would stand for the reading of scripture back then, and then he would, the, the rabbi would sit down. And that meant that this is now a, a, an official talk. 
And so this is what he does. And come to think of it, that's not a bad idea to sit down when it's time to give a talk. We'll, we'll deal with that later. But um, he sits down, which means, okay, I'm officially going to teach. And so everyone's listening. What is the rabbi going to say? And um, he says here in verse 3, he begins with blessed or blessed. And I, before we get to the different things that he's listing here, I don't want to skip over the fact that Jesus begins with blessing and not blasting. And I think that's important for us to note. See, because he could have started out his message with all the things that they're doing wrong. It's easy for us to do that sometimes, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't start with all the things they're doing wrong. In fact, Jesus, he's omniscient, right? He, he's God. He, he had quite a backlog on people that he could, he could blast them for. But he doesn't. He begins with blessing. And I think anyone um, who here who teaches God's word should take note of it. Note of this, because if God didn't, you shouldn't. God, Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious leaders of the day who were piling up burdens on other people. But Jesus, when he addresses the people, he encourages them, and he wants to lead them and guide them. He wants to um, urge them into a, a real, authentic relationship with God. And I just think that's wonderful. I love, I love that. He begins with blessing. Well, the question is, what does blessed or blessed mean? Jesus says, blessed, 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 over and over. What does this word mean? Now, um, the word blessed in Latin is beatus. Uh, beatus, which, which, which is helpful because this is where we get the word beatitude. Beatitude comes from the Latin word for um, blessed, which means beatus. Now, when I was a kid growing up, the word beatitude, this is oftentimes, this passage is referred to as the list of the beatitudes. And as a kid growing up, I just thought this was, when I heard beatitudes, I'm like, okay, these are the attitudes that I need to be. And that's kind of what I, like, oh, these are my attitudes. I need to be these things, right? Um, but beatitudes comes from the Latin word blessed. So this is not about the attitudes we need to have, although there, there are some attitudes that we need to have. It's really about being blessed. That's the whole point. These are the blessed, the, 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 the statements that Jesus makes. And so he's saying blessed, blessed, blessed. The question is, what does it mean to be blessed? And to be blessed, um, many translators translate this uh, word to mean happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those. And that's not a bad translation. In fact, the word blessed does include this concept of being happy. But it's so much more than that. Because happiness, as you and I know, is a subjective feeling. But these beatitudes, these blessings, are so much more than a subjective feeling of happiness or a worrylessness or whatever it might be. But it's also a subjective picture that God has of us. It's his, sorry, his objective view of us. To be blessed is God's objective view of us, which means he approves of us. When he said blessed, he says, I approve. He's saying, this is what makes God smile when, he's, when we see, he sees us objectively. Um, this is the approval, what makes God smile. This is how we earn the applause of heaven. When God's saying, bravo, congratulations, these are the things that make me smile, that I approve. And there's so much so different than what the world approves and what the world congratulates. You won't hear the word world congratulating people for being poor in spirit and being meek and being persecuted. But God, Jesus is saying, congratulations. Blessed are you 
who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you who are persecuted. So it's already so different than a world system. Jesus is saying, I'm coming with a new kingdom, and it's different than what you're used to in this world or in the religious system. It is so different. This is what God approves. The question is, well, what is it that God approves? What is it that means brings blessing to us, that which is truly happiness and joy and, and less anxiety, but also what God approves, what, what earns the applause of heaven. What is it? That's what we get to look at here in these, this list. And there's eight of them. And the first four focus on the, uh, the Beatitudes focus on our relationship with God. The second set, second four, really more focus on our relationship with others. But let's look at them together. The first one is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the first one. First statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, poor is not chiefly here a financial term. Not like poor, I have no money. He's saying poor in what? Poor in Spirit. So this is more in the spiritual dimension. Poor in spirit is, the, is um, this idea that I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm spiritually poor. It's the opposite of being proud and self-confident, um, being arrogant. This is the opposite side of that. It's being, I've, I have nothing. I'm, I'm broken and I'm, I've, I'm broke spiritually. It's the story of the prodigal son. Perhaps you remember that, where he gets this inheritance from his father and then he goes off and he squanders it on extravagant party life. But then when all the money's gone and he finds himself eating with pods with pigs, that he comes to his senses, it says in Luke 15. He comes to his senses. He comes to this reality that I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I'm broken. I'm bankrupt spiritually. And so he says, I'll go back to my father and throw myself at his feet and receive his mercy. This is the idea of being poor in spirit. It's the old classic hymn, um, Rock of Ages. There's this line in the old, this old, that old hymn, Rock of Ages. Um, how, does, how does it go? It goes, uh, nothing in my hands I bring. So nothing in my hands I bring. Um, simply to the cross I cling. That's the song, the, the lyric of the song, and it's this idea of, I don't bring anything. I'm poor. I have emptiness in my hands. Nothing to, nothing to you in my hands do I bring. I just cling to you, Jesus. It's this sense of, I'm broken. I'm broke. I don't have it. But what we want to do is come to God and say, but God, look what I do have. Look at my performance. Look at my, my legacy. Look at the things that I've done for you. Look how much offering I gave this last week at church. We want to bring something, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're blessed when you recognize you've got nothing. And we see the comparison, and I just think this is so good, this comparison found in Luke chapter um, 18, uh, this comparison between the religious person and um, a person who recognizes their poor in spirit. Let me read it for you. In Luke 18, it says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Do you hear the, the image and the performance and the, the comparison going on here? At least I'm not, look at, I'm not like that guy. Listen to the performance side. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's a picture of being poor in spirit. This is what what God's looking for. This is when he says, congratulations, when you recognize you're empty. This last week, I had the opportunity to speak at our Celebrate Recovery ministry. And I enjoyed my time. And part of it is because the Celebrate Recovery ministry uses steps, like the 12 steps, they use eight steps based on the Beatitudes here in the Sermon on the Mount. And the first step is recognizing that I'm, I'm poor in spirit, that I'm powerless, that I don't have anything. And when I was talking to the folks at the Celebrate Recovery Ministry, you know what I said to them? I said, I wish every single person in our church could come and learn the principles and practices that we talk about here in this ministry every week. Because all of us have areas of our life that are unmanageable. All of us have areas of our life that we're powerless over. And the sooner that we can admit that, the better off we are. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, look at, the, look at the, um, the reward for being poor in spirit. He said, poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh my, did I lose it? Did I lose it? Okay, there we go. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the reward. And it's so different. See, Jesus says, you, you come empty, guess what? I'll make you rich. It, we become rich when we recognize we have nothing. He says, I'm promising you the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But if we think we've got something, God, look at me, look what I can do for you, look at all my performance, look at my legacy, look at all the stuff I'm doing, we're missing it. But it's those who say, I've got nothing. God, I'm coming to you with empty hands. That's when God says, that's my man, that's my woman, that's my child, the person who recognizes they're empty so I can fill them up and I will give them my kingdom, this poor in spirit beginning. This is, this is so powerful. Then the next verse says this, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The word mourn again, it's, um, can mean, of course, all sorts of grieving. We, we grieve the evil in the world. We grieve personally the loss of, of loved ones and there's grief there and certainly God cares for us in our grief. But this also has a, a, a spiritual element similar to poor. Um, where it's poor in spirit, this mourning has to do with also mourning over the, the fact that we can't, uh, there's things in our life that we can't control, that we can't. We, this mourning over our sin, our brokenness. First step, we're empty. God, we're poor in spirit. Second step, that we, we, we grieve over that. And we recognize like Paul, like what a wretched man I am. Who can save me? There's this lament, this grief over the condition of where we're at. And this is what he's saying. He's saying those who mourn, guess what? They'll be comforted because God is near the brokenhearted. When we recognize in our life, I can't, but God, you can, and I'm, I need to come to you. He says, gotcha. I'm there. I'll comfort you. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. Then verse, the next verse says this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. This isn't a statement you're probably going to make at your next business meeting. Um, <laughs> you probably want to say, I've got a great idea. 
Blessed are the meek. They'll be like, well, what are you talking about, right? It, 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 this doesn't sometimes fit in our world system, this idea of meekness. But meek really just means gentle. Blessed are those who are gentle, those who are meek. And gentle, by the way, is used of, of powerful horses who, um, who have been trained. And as they're trained, it's not that they're less powerful. They just become more useful as they're trained. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have learned to be gentle. Blessed are those who have learned to be meek. And perhaps in your own life, you've experienced that. Moments when you've, you've approached someone, something with gentleness. And you're surprised by how powerful that approach can be. And you just wish in your mind, can I remember to be gentle next time too? Because it has power. It has significance. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are gentle. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean to inherit the earth? Does it mean that God's going to give over the, the title deed to earth? No, that's not what he's saying here. But it's this, this different orientation that a gentle person has over a person who wants to aggressively take things or pushes their way to the front of the line. See, the person who's wanting to get ahead, who's scrapping to get their way, they miss God's provision. But it's those who are gentle, who recognize, you know what, God, you're sovereign over the whole world. And I I can approach things in a whole new way, knowing that you're in control. You know my needs. You'll meet me. And he, he provides for those who approach the world, not saying, how can I get the front of the line and push people out of the way, but walk gently. God knows how to care for our needs and in in personally. So this is what he's saying. Then in verse 6, it says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the idea of of being uh, focused on what God wants. It's this this orientation where God says, okay, I recognize God having an authentic faith relationship with you is really what's most important. And I want to dedicate myself, myself to pursuing you. What's right before you and what's just with other people, that's, that's this, this pursuit. And if we say, yeah, that's where I'm going to put my energy on saying, God, I'm going to follow you, pursue you, do what's right with you, do what's just towards others, then he says, they will be filled. And you don't find that in a religious system, um, this filling of pursuing God, because it's empty. And so he's saying, hey, when you do this, you will be filled. Then verse 7 says this, Blessed are the merciful. Now, this is the second four. This is dealing now more with relationships with other people. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Now, some of us, I know, when we say, okay, I have to be merciful to other people, that's hard for us. Because we can think to ourselves, but they don't deserve mercy. Or what if they take advantage of me if I show them mercy? But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are merciful. Let me just say this to you, okay? Write this down. Take note of it. Um, your sin against God is greater than anyone else's sin against you. Your offenses, your sin against God is greater than anyone else's offenses towards you. And you may be saying, well, wait a minute. You don't know the hurt that I've received, the, the abuse, the damage, the way that people have treated me. And it's true, I don't. 
I don't know that experience. I'm speaking from a perspective of what God's word has to say. And just a little bit later in this book of Matthew, Jesus tells a story. He helps us understand how great our need is for mercy before God. He tells a story about a master who has a servant. And the servant owes the master like a bazillion dollars. And I'm pretty sure that's how the Greek translated it, a bazillion dollars. He owes his master a ton of money. And he cannot pay it back. So he pleads for mercy. And what does the master do for the servant? He gives him mercy. He says, your debt is canceled. The bazillion dollars that you owe me, it's all wiped away. It's gone. What does that servant do then next? The servant then goes to another servant who owes him five bucks. And he says, I want my money. Guy says, give me mercy. Nope. And he throws him in jail. And you feel the discrepancy there, don't you? Someone who's received so much mercy is struggling to give mercy to someone who has this small debt. And in the same way, it's just... Jesus is saying, listen, you've received so much mercy. Why don't you show mercy to those around you who have a small debt that you're holding on to? And he says, those... Uh, blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. Guess what? <laughs> what you measure out is what you'll receive. So you're saying, well, I'm holding on this grudge. Okay, great. Do you want them to hold on their grudges for you and other people to hold grudges against you? Hold bitterness against you? Hold this debt against you? No, 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 no. I don't want them to do that, but I can, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Listen, he's saying, listen, you don't hold grudges. You don't hold on to your bitterness. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. This is what Jesus is saying. And it's so powerful. Then verse 8 says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. This, This idea of pure in heart is the idea of sincerity of heart. And this is important because so often in our world we live in, we have a divided heart. It's not pure. It's not sincere. It's not focused on one thing. What we tend to do in this world that we live in is have one foot in the church with God and one church in the one foot in the world. You know what I'm saying? We have a divided heart. God, you've got my heart. But in these areas over here in my life, I kind of want to be in charge. I want to have that part of my heart and you don't get any part of it. And what we end up doing is we have a divided divided heart, not purity in heart, not unity. And there's this this compromise. There's this this sense of uh, our, our heart gets, it's, it gets, uh, um, what's the word for it? But it gets cloudy. And when, when we do this, when we say, okay, one, one, one foot with you, God, one foot of our heart in the world and everything else, we have a clouded view of God. And that's why he's saying, listen, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They'll see God more clearly. Here's the promise. And the point of the pure heart part is saying, hey, instead of one foot in the world, one foot with you, God, it's I'm both feet with you, God. And it's not that I have this perfect pure heart that I never sin. No, we're poor in spirit, right? We've got nothing to offer. But it is this this sense of, God, I'm all yours. You've got my whole heart. I'm not going to date five people at the same time because uh, they don't get to really know all that. It's just a mess, right? The bachelor, bachelorette, that's crazy, right? 
God's saying, I want your whole heart. All with me. Pure heart. Not that you're perfect, but you say, God, my heart's yours. I'm singularly focused on you. And guess what? The promise of that is we have a better view of God. It's not clouded. It's not divided in all these different places. The beautiful thing is this promise. They will see God. How wonderful is that promise? Then verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Apparently, in the ancient world, they had people that didn't get along. And they needed peacemakers. Crazy, right? Of course, we have the same issues, don't we? We have people, we just, we don't get along. We get, we get divided, we get, we get sideways. We need peacemakers. It happens all the time. And so we need peacemakers. How much would our homes, our marriages, our, our workplaces, the church, different environments be helped with just people who step forward and say, I'll be a peacemaker. I want to help bring peace in the relationships around me. God said, blessed are those people who bring peace in the places of conflict, the places of challenge, for they will be called children of God. Why are they called children of God? Because when we are peacemakers, we are actually reflecting who God is and what he does. God's heart, right, is to bring peace between God and man and to take away the enmity between God and man. That's God's heart. He wants to be a peacemaker with us. And when we recognize, God, you created peace between me and you through Jesus Christ, and I've received that peace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross on my behalf, then it just makes sense. Why don't I do what you did for me and be a peacemaker for others? Look for ways to bring peace. Then we are called children of God. You're doing a God work. Then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'd love to skip this one a little bit, but there is this reality that we will be persecuted. Now, notice, it does not say blessed are those who are persecuted because they're arrogant or they demand their rights. Blessed are the persecuted because they're lording over, them, over others. So like, I'm a Christian, you're not. That's, that's not the whole blessing point. You're just, that's just a jerk. And so he's saying, you know, that's not the blessing. The blessing of being persecuted because of what? Righteousness. Because you're following God. When you follow God, not, it's not always going to be popular. Why is that? Because Jesus wasn't always popular. They hated him. They're going to hate you. There's just moments, there's going to be times when people are like, ah, you follow a king that I am having a hard time submitting to, so I'm not going to like you. And they'll, you, you will face and feel some of that persecution. So then he expands on that in the following two verses. Verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So he's saying, Blessed are you when you have people who say bad things or, or challenge you or, or hate you. He's saying, you're blessed because of that. Now the answer, the question is then, what am I supposed to do about that? Am I supposed to retaliate when people say bad things about me, when I'm feeling persecution because of my faith? No. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So he's saying, listen, rejoice. You'll receive a reward in heaven. Now there's the temptation for all of us to say, I got to fight back now. I need to retaliate now. And there is a certain sense of reward from that when we fight back and we put people in their place. But that's a temporary reward. We miss it. 
He's saying, I want to give you a heavenly reward. When you rejoice and say, yeah, that's just part of, part of the, <laughs> the, the job description as a, as a Christian, as a disciple. We're not always going to be popular. There will be moments when we face persecution, sometimes on a very large, in a, in a very difficult way, and sometimes very simple ways or small ways. Regardless of that, there is persecution. Now, after all, saying all of this, this is a whole lot to take in. There's a lot of things here in terms of application. There is one thing that I want you to take away from this passage, and I want you to think about this as, as we kind of end our time on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I want you to to, to recognize and to understand that this is a list. This is a whole list of different ways that um, we want to apply and put involved in our life, but it's a list of how God wants to produce character in our life. All of these things have to do with God wanting to shape us and Him wanting to shape our character. And this is an important thing for us to understand because in the Bible... Character comes before conduct. The Bible is very concerned. God is very concerned with who we are, not just what we do. But so often in religious, the religious world, religious systems, it's what we do that's more important. But Jesus is saying, no, no, the being is more important than the doing. And Jesus really wants us to have character. So this is that prayer I talked about last week. I've talked about when I first came here, that it's this sense that God wants to do something in us first so that he can do something through us. Character precedes our conduct. Next week, we're going to talk about what that conduct looks like, how we can be salt and light. And Jesus goes there, but he starts first with who we're to be, our character. And as individuals, as a church, we want to be fruitful. We want to do great things for God. We want to have an impact. But listen, it starts with the foundation of who we are. That we say, God, we want to be your children. We want to be approved by you. We want to have character that you say, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Do a work in us so that you can do a work through us. And this is so vitally important because it is possible, by the way, to try to get all the things that Jesus is talking about here with, and skip the character side. It's possible to say, I'm going to take, I'm going to grab and miss the whole foundational root work that God wants to do in our hearts, the transformation from the inside out. In fact, someone wrote out um, what these uh, Beatitudes would look like from maybe a, an orientation in the world that says, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to grab these things. Let me read it for you. And this is what it says. Someone wrote, wrote out, Blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of pleasure. Blessed are those who feel good about themselves, for they shall be confident. Blessed are the aggressive, for they shall control the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for recognition, for they shall be noticed online. <laughs> Blessed are the demanding, for they shall receive what they deserve. Blessed are the sexually liberated, for they shall be their own gods. Blessed are the scheming, for they shall be called children of the powerful. Blessed are those who are praised by the world, 
for theirs is the kingdom of now. See, it's a lot different, isn't it? There's different ways that you can go about it. Jesus is calling us to be different from the inside out. That we come to him and say, God, do all that you need to do in us so that you can all do all that you want to do through us. This is the beauty of this passage. God wants to do a work of character in our lives so that we can follow him and make a difference for him. And we need to come to him and say, God, will you help us do that? To hear your words, to allow it to penetrate our hearts and change us from the inside out. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for your word and how it penetrates our hearts and our lives. And the sermon that you gave 2,000 years ago still resonates with us today and helps us understand what you're looking for. God, many of us have been on that religious cycle of being so focused on our image, our performance, trying to compare ourselves to others, and it is absolutely exhausting. But we thank you that you show us a different way, a way that you say, blessed. So Lord, help us to be people who are blessed by you because we're different and live differently because of what you have done for us. God, we thank you that you call us into a relationship with you. And it's through that relationship that you can change us. You want to walk with us. You forgive us. You pick us up when we stumble and we fall. And so God, we pray that you do that in our lives individually and as a church so that we could be the people that you want us to be. God, we pray this in your name. Amen.